Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, we have Mary Buck speaking with Leonard Greenspoon, the legendary Leonard Greenspoon about Bible translations. And uh, I think this will be an interesting conversation for you. So we hope you enjoy it. And thanks again for listening. Welcome to the Biblical World on Script podcast. I am joined today by Leonard, who is a professor from Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, um, who has recently published a book on the trans or Jewish translations of the Hebrew Bible. So really exciting to to hear more about um, just this kind of vast field, right? As Jewish uh, populations moved out of Israel into the diaspora and what they brought with them and how they translated the Hebrew Bible as they as they kind of made new communities. So really, really looking forward to that. I know a lot of listeners have questions about what are the different translations and the different editions and how do we do textual criticism and all of those things. And so I, we're really excited to get this overview of the Jewish translation. So welcome, Leonard. Can you share a little bit more about yourself? Or, uh, I'd love to kind of learn more about your role and your interests. Thank you, Mary. I'm very happy to be here today. Um, I'm a native of Richmond, Virginia. I did my undergraduate work actually at the University of Richmond, and my graduate work at Harvard. In between my undergraduate and my graduate school, I spent a year as a Fulbright scholar right out of college back in 67, 68. That's way back when. Where did you go as a Fulbright uh, Rome. I was at the University Ah, of Rome. That's amazing. For for, for the entire year. And it's, it's difficult now, I guess, to understand that, whereas today, or at least pre pandemic and pretty soon post pandemic people fly off to rome every weekend it's hardly a big <laughs> deal in those days it was a very very big deal <laughs> and uh, what was interesting was that 90 percent of the people that i came into contact with did not know english so i started to learn italian but then you actually learn italian when you uh, and i chose to live with a, a, an italian-speaking family so uh yeah that's fantastic wonderful. that's fantastic then i then i came back and i was trying to decide, did I want to go into underwater archaeology, which I actually did think about doing, and that, that I would have done at University of Pennsylvania. But finally, I decided to, to go to Harvard. Why not? And um, so I did my graduate work there and then went to teach at Clemson uh, State University of South Carolina, and I was there 20 years. And then uh, people then sometimes say, well, why did you move to Creighton University, which is a fine Jesuit Catholic school in Omaha? And the response is, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> yes. I have, I have an, an, an endowed chair in, in Jewish civilization. And uh, I teach, I, I pretty much teach whatever it is I want to teach. So That's- just in, uh, I actually teach an honors class on, on Bible translation. And the premise of it is that the students, we have very bright students, but they don't know Hebrew or Greek. But nonetheless, there's so much material available today, so much reliable material that's in English translation that we've been able to make a a go of it. And then there's a second Bible-related honors class that I developed 
which I will be teaching this coming fall, and it's called the Bible in Popular Culture. And so what we do is we look at the Bible in, in music, in literature, in sports, wh wherever the Bible shows up, and it shows up everywhere, and get a, a sense of, of the variety of ways in which the Bible is referred to, in this case, both the Old and the New Testament. And sometimes I would say it's entertaining, but sketchy. And sometimes it's entertaining, <laughs> but very reliable. And I'm particularly interested in, uh, in the ways in which, um, you know, reliable information, substantive information can be relayed and uh, pretty much um, say and actually believe that for the most part, entertaining and educational are not opposites. Now, it's going to be some topics. <laughs> Depend it depends on the topic. <laughs> for Bible translation, for example, um, it, it can be entertaining. No, that's great. And you just wrote, so, and I, I didn't realize you had taught, or of course it makes sense that you would have, but taught honors classes on this topic. But I think you just published a book called, um, and hopefully I'll get it right here, Jewish Bible Translations, Personalities, Passions, Politics, Progress. And you just published it in the fall, correct? Um, of 2020. And so pretty recently out, tell us a little bit about why did you, you know, what was kind of the impetus for writing the book? Um, and, and how did you end up kind of going about pursuing this project? Bible translation in Judaism uh, has always been a sort of a secondary or peripheral topic. But after all, uh, within Judaism, the Hebrew Bible has always had a central role, and that's the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. So that even to this very day, if uh, you're a member of any synagogue, whether it's Reform or obviously if it's Orthodox, uh, and you're going to be bar or bat mitzvah. Uh, you're going to read the Bible, and you're going to read it in a scroll, as was done in antiquity, and you're going to do it from a Hebrew text. So the centrality of Hebrew as a language and the Hebrew Bible is it's still a, a substantial part of Judaism, even among those whose beliefs are not traditional. And for that reason, translations of the Bible, for the most part, haven't received a lot of attention. And we'll talk about among the two earliest translations, one of them, the Targums into Aramaic, did receive a good deal of attention in, in the Jewish tradition. But the other one, the translation to Greek, which is one of my specialties, did, did not. And then who would be aware of the fact that um, there's a tradition, of, a substantial tradition of translating the Hebrew Bible for Jews into Arabic? or translating the Bible, or the Hebrew Bible, into Hungarian, or to translate the Hebrew Bible into Spanish. Or just, no, matter what, no matter what the language, there's a, if, if that was used there, that was probably a translation done. And so I've been fascinated by this, and then been fascinated by the tradition. I mean, the very first, as we'll see, uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes, no matter how we judge it, the first translation of the Bible, uh, whether we think it was into Greek or into Aramaic, uh, was done by Jews for Jews. And so the oldest translations are Jewish. The, the translations being prepared within the Jewish community uh, all the time. But this is largely overshadowed by the fact that most Bible translations that you will see 
we used to say, I used to say, you see the bookstore, who goes to a bookstore now? But assuming we still have bookstores, um, and you'll, you'll, there would always be a Barnes and Noble, or there would always, and they, they still exist, there would always be a big section on, on Bible translations, and 90 to 95% of them are Protestant, uh, or and a smaller percentage is uh, are, are Catholic. And I said, well, you know, have there really been that many Jewish Bible translations? And I think uh, that it's an important topic for general scholars to know and for the general public to know, but among, the, among Jews and Jewish community to know about the translations as well. Because as we'll see, I, mean, I really love the, I, I'm an alliterative person. I did not come up with personalities, passions, politics, progress. <laughs> Uh, my editor at the Jewish Publication Society was one of the publishers of the of the book, along with the University of Nebraska, came up with this. But she knew I liked that. And it, it really is about, if, if I could retitle it, I might call it Jewish Bible Translators. This is a lot about the translators themselves and mm. what goes into producing uh, a, a translation, what motivates uh, translators, uh, what are... I mean, there are only a certain number of ways we can translate, but there are all kinds of nuances. And why do translators do what they do? And, you know, it's my, oh, as close to a certainty as I can get, that translations will continue to be made. Uh, you, you might say, wait a minute, hasn't the Bible, just to take an example, hasn't it been translated enough into English for a general, that is to say, a general Christian community? Well, you and I may say, Yes, it's been translated as many ways as you could do it, but that won't stop another 10 translations from coming out this year, for, for better or worse. Um, and we, we can talk about that as well. So I just, and, and no one has ever written, this is sort of cool, um, no one has ever written a book on Jewish Bible translations. Which is actually shocking to me. You would think that that would have been, but no, it's great. You obviously found a, an important topic that should have been written about already, so... It was waiting. It's waiting for me. Uh, it was waiting for you. That's right. And, and 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 even though I so I am writing in this book about translations into Greek, Aramaic, Arabic, Yiddish, which is a colloquial form of German, and then uh, a regular German. I have to see if I can remember this. And then Spanish, French, Italian, Hungarian, Russian, English, and then I have a, um, a sort of an appendix on Chinese. But that's only twelve languages that. It, there are hundreds of others as well. Um, and it, it's just, it's an absolutely, it's fascinating in and of itself. And uh, so I get sort of animated about it and I, I can't see anything wrong with that. That's awesome. Um, one question, I mean, I think what I find interesting about translations is that they speak, and I, I like what you said about rather than Jewish Bible translations, but rather translators, right? The translations themselves speak a lot um, or tell us a lot about the translator, the context in which it's being translated, the community which it was translated for, and even the way it's, and, you know, you think about the Targumim, the way it's translated and the additions and the changes or the LXX, right? It's changes and how it really speaks to what the community is thinking about, what they care about, what their traditions are. Um, and so I think that's what's so fascinating about it, right? You think, oh, translation's just a word for word or it's an idea for idea, but actually it tells us a lot about the people on the ground that really valued this translation. Um, can you tell a little bit more about how you dealt with that in your book? Uh, yes. Um, the, the further back we go, alas, 
the less information we have, which is often the case. Uh, it's if there if I'm saying or if I'm thinking that there's some ambiguity about what is the first translation. Uh, generally speaking, we would say the first translation uh, of any part of the Bible was what we call the Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew text, the Hebrew Bible, into Greek. And um, trust me, take 25 scholars, you got 26 positions. Uh, <laughs> but or more. <laughs> or, or more. But, uh, essentially, the narrative is would be that uh, sometime after Alexander basically conquered the entire ancient uh, world, especially the ancient Near East, um, one of his generals, Ptolemy, established a, a, an empire in Egypt. And Alexander had already founded the city that would become Ptolemy's city and would become actually the major city of this time period, we call the Hellenistic period, uh, the city of Alexandria. And uh, a large component of Jews who were living in Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem, uh, and there are different theories about how many were taken down by force and how many moved on their own. Anyway, they moved down to Alexandria. It was the most cosmopolitan city of its time. Look, it's Athens that had its heyday. Rome was still a hayseed, but this was this is Alexandria. We're talking about 300, 200 BCE. And as the Jews settled in there, um, there was the, the it's sort of a push and a, a tug. You're in an entirely new civilization. You don't want to give up distinctive features of your religion. You don't want to give up distinctive features of your belief. Uh, you don't want to give up everything. On the other hand, you also want to assimilate. So in, in some context, assimilate's almost like a dirty word. You assimilate, but that's, I don't look at it that way. You know, we are, we, we know this, hopefully everybody knows, we are a nation of immigrants. My father came from um, the Ukraine. And, and for the most part, we, we've been able to keep some parts of our uh, traditions and adapted others. and frankly, lost others. It's, been, it's just been a process. In this case, it appears as if Hebrew as a spoken language, and Hebrew is a language people understood, quickly was pushed aside, and everybody began to speak Greek. Uh, and, you know, when you learn a new language, it's not just the vocabulary, and it's not just the syntax, uh, it's not just the grammar. It's it's a whole worldview, and the the Greek worldview is very different from the traditional Hebrew worldview. Uh, the question arose again. This is all hypothetical. We don't have any evidence. Uh, we don't have any eyewitnesses or people who claim to be. Actually, we have a person who claims to be an eyewitness to the development of the Septuagint, but I don't think it's. That's exactly the case. So um, what we have is only the documentation we have and the translation itself. It, it appears as if, uh, I would say both, because the Jews in Alexandria, and at one point there were hundreds, there were several hundred thousand Jews in Alexandria, which had a population of three million. So it was, it was a substantial uh, group of people most of whom had either 
depending on whether it was the first generation, second generation, or third generation, had either moved from Judea and had learned Hebrew, or they were the children or the grandchildren. It's not all that different from really the Jews in the United States or any other immigrant group. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I said my father's side, I'm really first generation American. I'm my mother, fourth generation American. And um, some people uh, are more willing to give up their language and others want to retain it. We assume the same kinds of the same kind of debates, internal debates within the community. But at some point uh, around the year 275 BCE, I'll use the BCE, um, members of the Jewish community, probably with the support of the reigning monarch of Egypt. So all the reigning monarchs of Egypt, fortunately, have the same name, Ptolemy. Easier. So this is Ptolemy II, and I believe his support was crucial as well. They translated the five books of Moses or the Torah or the Pentateuch from Hebrew into Greek. Um, that this was a, a, a again, I, I'm going to say it was a revolutionary moment, uh, not just in the history of Judaism, but in general, the, the Greeks were um, justifiably proud of their achievements, but they tended to have very little use for anybody else's, so that the Greeks were happy to translate their works into every language, so that you know everybody would get the benefit of Greek culture. But so far as we can tell, the Septuagint was the first, certainly one of the earliest, if not the earliest, example of a, in this case, uh, a Near Eastern text being translated into Greek. This was this was an, this was a as far as we know, it's the first big, and I would call it a literary achievement. And so how did um, the Jews who were involved in this translation translate the text? So generally, in the old days, which would be 30 years ago, we would say literal versus free. Uh, and that was never quite right. Uh, a literal translation uh, maintains as much of the vocabulary and the structure and the grammar and the, the patterns of thought and the patterns of expression of, the, of what's being translated as possible. It's, it's literal. And what happens when we look at a literal translation of the Bible? Uh, an example of a, of a literal translation of the Bible is the King James Version, which at more than 400 years old now is, is still a vital force in a lot of people's religious life. It sounds strange to us. Now, the King James sounds strange to us because the language is 400 years. But if you use a translation like uh, the New American Standard Bible, it's used by a lot of more conservative Christians. Its language, while it's not as odd sounding as King James, it still doesn't sound like other English language literature that we look at, hear, or read. Now, for some people, that's a problem, okay? But when, and so they don't, they prefer not to do a literal translation. So the literal translation has this advantage that when you read, uh, if you read a translation of the Bible today, uh, that's like the contemporary English version, which is a very good 
freer text produced by the American Bible Society. It feels like you're reading anything that was just written yesterday. Aha, but the Bible was not written just yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was written thousands of years ago in a culture uh, very different from ours. And a freer, a, a more literal translation, excuse me, a more literal translation highlights the fact that this is a foreign text. I mean, we can apply the Bible to ourselves, as many people do, but its origin is not in the United States and it's not the 20th and 21st century. The disadvantage of a literal translation is that it makes more demands, if you will, on the reader. Because when you're looking at it, it you just can't read it like you're reading anything else. You have to stop and think, okay, what exactly does this mean? What is, what is this? Why is it in this structure, whereas we use some other structure? Um, much of the Septuagint is translated quite literally from Hebrew into Greek. And uh, presumably the translators uh, had their reasons for doing so. They, they wanted to reflect both the translation, the language they were translating from, which was Hebrew, and then the language in which they were translating, which is Greek. And Hebrew and Greek are you know, not just two different languages, but they two different groups of languages, Indo-European and Semitic. Uh, but I, I had always thought that if I knew Italian, I then knew Spanish. Not exactly, but you know, it's, it's, it's not all that much different. But the difference between Hebrew and Greek is substantial. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, when, a, when a translator, as many of the translators of the Septuagint uh, operated, decides to be literal, um, they, they're conscious of what they're doing. It creates, as I say, I don't say difficulties, yes, but it is a difficulty in the sense that you as the reader, or in antiquity, probably you as the hearer, it's, you're not going to be able to pick it up right away. You have to stop. You have to think. You have to say, wait a minute, exactly what is this? Uh, and that's a perfectly appropriate kind of translation. But we have other parts of the Septuagint, because ultimately the entire Hebrew Bible was translated, which are very free. So a freer translation um, tends to uh, the, 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 the translators uh, tend not to feel bound by the structure or the vocabulary or the grammar of the language they're translating. Their primary focus is on the audience. How can I get the audience to understand what I think the original text uh, was? Uh, and uh, that's not a, in my view, it's not a better way of translating. It's not a worse way of translating. It's a different way of translating. And some of the Septuagint translators chose to translate very freely. We don't know exactly why, because we have no eyewitness accounts. We have no memoirs about it. We have later traditions. So a free translation today could be, again, the contemporary English Bible. Uh, the Living Bible uh, was uh, very well known several decades ago. It's a paraphrase which goes even beyond um, free, um, but it may have its uses as well. So um, we speak now, instead of literal and free, we speak now of translations 
which are formal and those which are functional. The formal translation is the more literal. And the reason the term formal makes sense is that translators who use this approach believe that the meaning of, the, of a word or the meaning of a sentence or the meaning of a verse, the meaning of a passage is inextricably bound up with its form. So clearly you can't, if you try to translate Hebrew, if you try to reflect Hebrew word for word, order for order, word order for word order in English, you'll have something which is incomprehensible. So you have to make some allowances, but the, the formal equivalent translators believe that the closer you stay to the form of the original, the better off the process of communication is. The functional translators, on the other hand, ask a different question, or the question they ask is, what do we think the original writers, what the original authors, no matter whether they were authors, redactors, how many there were, we don't have to discuss that by this minute. What do we think they were trying to say? How do we say that? Um, and that then produces a, a functional, what we call a functional translation, less concerned with the form of the original and more concerned with their understanding of the function of the original. And for, I, I know that when I first started being interested in, in Bible translation, I thought that formal equivalence was the only way to go. Uh, but that's not true. It, it, again, it depends on what you're, what you're using the translation for. Is it being used for studies, using for meditation, or, 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 or however you're using it? So the Septuagint, which is the first translation, which began, as far as we can tell, around 275 BCE, probably was translated over several centuries, is the first written translation that we have. Now, this does not mean that we have actual Greek text from 275 BCE. Um, we have old Greek text. We have text from the first from the first century before the Common Era. Uh, we, uh, but most of what we rely on for the Septuagint are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And um, in fact, we speak we can speak of them as manuscripts. And then we're talking about manuscripts in its what I would call it's etymo etymological sense, written by hand. So we recognize that everything in the Western world uh, that was written down between the beginning of writing and 1453, when Gutenberg perfected movable type in Germany, everything was written by hand. And so then that becomes a fascinating topic because you're constantly looking at uh, copies of copies. And copyists who were presumably proficient, but also human, who were susceptible to making all kinds of inadvertent mistakes. And also, on occasion, scribes felt as if the text they were copying, even though they might have thought of it as somehow another uh, canonical, although somehow another special, but if they would correct mistakes too. And so the study of all of these manuscripts is absolutely, uh, it's absolutely fascinating. It's part of what we call text criticism. 
Uh, and then there are specialists who uh, study just the handwriting on manuscripts. They are a specialist who study just the leather that's used on the manuscripts. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Can, can I ask a quick question? I'm sorry, yes. No, I think it's it's great. I mean, I, I think you, you took us through the Alexandria School, which was great, and the Jewish community that was there. And I think Philo of Alexandria, who's a little bit later, right, because he's in the you know, first century CE, but he he describes you know potentially almost even a million Jews there so it's a it's a huge population and the and this translation really fills a you know Philo who had very limited you know knowledge of Hebrew he was probably using the Septuagint on the ground right and all of those things but the question I'd have about the Septuagint because we did you talked about the different types of translations which is really helpful but the Septuagint is a fascinating one because it has so many additions it has the Apocrypha, right? It's got Tobit and Judith, and it's got additions to Kings. And, and so even, so we've kind of talked about what the translation could be, whether it's formal or functional, but what about those additions? How, you know, did you deal with that in your book in talking about what went, you know, what happens when a translation becomes a full interpretation <laughs> with additions and new texts and all of those things? Uh, in a way, yes. Um, all the books that are in the, the Apocrypha, we call the Apocrypha or deuterocanonical books. These are books which are part of the Roman Catholic Old Testament, the Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Old Testament, the Ethiopic Church and a few others. These are, um, but they're not part of the Protestant Old Testament and they're not part of the Jewish Bible. And these are books like First and Second Maccabees, you mentioned there's, uh, there's Judith, uh, and there's um, Tobit, and there's the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, and then there are additions to the Book of Daniel and to the Book of Esther. All of these, all of these works are Jewish. They were all done within the context of Jewish communities. They were all written prior to the beginning of Christianity. So the question arises: Why aren't they part of the Hebrew Bible? The answer, frankly, is we don't know. Um, there's a strong sense, and I think this is pretty important, that um, even when members of the Jewish community recognized, okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and with their Hebrew names, whatever name they had in antiquity, these are sacred. These are the authors are somehow or another divinely inspired. Uh, and, and we get a sense of that from the Dead Sea Scrolls, because many of the Dead Sea Scrolls are copies of what we would call the Bible. We don't know what they would have called it, but we would call it the Bible. Um, but at the same time, because one of, the, well, one of the fascinating aspects of the Dead Sea Scrolls in connection with uh, manuscripts of the Bible is that they had more than one form for example, of the book of, of Jeremiah, a very different form of the book of Jeremiah. There are several forms of the book of Jeremiah. They had them in Hebrew manuscripts that appeared to be from the same time period, and they appeared to be in use essentially simultaneously, which is why we can speak of, a, why scholars can speak of the period before the second century of the common era as a period of textual fluidity. Uh, so again, for example, um, Jeremiah 
the number of chapters, the order of the chapters, not to mention the specific wording of, of verses, is that there are several manuscripts of what we would call Jeremiah. We have only fragments of them among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's almost as if um, someone would have said, okay, we're going to all read, well, we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah today. We're going to look at chapter 18. But then, though, of course, that's anachronistic because chapters and verse numbers didn't come until much later. But, you know, we're, we're going to now read about the story about Jeremiah's uh, burying something in his hometown. And it would be, okay, everybody, they would have scrolls and they would look at them. They weren't fixed on or concerned necessarily about the exact wording of it. You know, and, and so it wasn't until sometime after the destruction of the temple by the Romans, the second temple by the Romans in 70 of the common era, that efforts were made within the Jewish community to determine exactly which books were going to be what we would call canonical. The term they used, it's a very interesting term, the rabbinical term, which is equivalent to canonical, is books that make the hands unclean. <laughs> books that make the hands unclean. And we, we have some discussion in the Jewish literature about these, but we don't have a, a lot of discussion about why this book was accepted, why this book wasn't. Uh, um, and it, it's fairly clear that um, some Jewish communities accepted as part of, again, what we would call their Bible, books like Maccabees, Judith, uh, Tobit. In fact, I think every Bible should have Judith in. I think Judith is a great story. Some of the Bible are really great. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and, and it, it's, it's almost ironic that the books of Maccabees, which describe basically the origins of the holiday of Hanukkah, are in the Catholic Bible, but not in the Jewish Bible. And it's among Jews that Hanukkah, but that's, and, and the reasons for that, Lord, yeah. I would say no, nobody really can be absolutely certain. So the whole idea of when the Bible became canonical in terms of these are the books that are in the Bible, this is the order of the books, this is the wording of the books. It's, it was a slow and gradual process. So the, the main, the, well, the first um, evidence for a, what we might call a Septuagint, because the various books were translated at various places by different people, perhaps independently. But sometime in the uh, third and fourth century, the common era, uh, Christian communities gathered together uh, the Greek form of what they were going to call their Bible. And they were formed in what we call a codex. So the codex is the forerunner of, the, of, of a book. So we had... Before that, we had scrolls, and with the scroll, so you have a piece of leather, and it's sewn together to another piece of leather, uh, leather on one side, and it's sewn together a piece of leather on the other side. The hundred or more thousand books that were in the library at Alexandria, for example, they were all in scroll form. It's perfectly fine for some purposes, but it really isn't great if you want to go back and read page one again, and you're on page 200, and you just can't turn the page, you've got to scroll it. Uh, somebody in the first century, presumably in Rome, hit upon what I guess we call the bright idea 
of sewing together the, uh, at one side the, the pieces of leather, and that would form what we call a codex or a book. And that became very popular among Christians. Sometime in the third and fourth century, uh, at least three major codexes or codices were produced. A Codex Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Sinaiticus is what we call them. And they contain essentially the Bible in Greek for their Christian communities. And what's interesting is that uh, all three have some, they have most of the content is the same, but all three have some books that the others don't have. They have them in different orders and the wording is different. So this is really all, all the way we're at the time now of Constantine, the beginnings of Christianity as a state religion. And there were still debates uh, in the in the Jewish world, the the structure of the Hebrew, we call it the Hebrew Bible. Um, I'm not of, offended by the use of the term Old Testament. Some it's it's not in use all that much anymore, to the extent that it sort of says, "Well, that's the Old Testament." Ah, but here we have a newer, better Testament. But we'll call it the the Hebrew Bible. The the structure of it seems to be very early. And that is you have the five books of Moses, the five books that we call the Torah. For Jews, that is traditionally and to this very day, the heart of the Bible. Uh, so if you go to a synagogue today on uh, a Saturday morning, sometimes on a holiday, a scroll is brought out. That is a handwritten scroll, and it contains the five books of Moses. Uh, the structure of that is at least 15 Hundred years old. It, it, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, the the next component for Jews of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible are the prophets, and for Jews this includes the former prophets, and and that's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, which Christians tend to speak of as the histories. Well, I mean they are historical accounts of of a kind, but they're also formed from the perspective of the prophets. That is what made a king great in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, according to the authors of, of, the, of the books, it was how closely they adhered to God's standards. The gross national product, the amount of land they conquered, was not the standard they used. And therefore, we can speak of them as prophetic books in that they convey the same perspective as the books of the prophets. And then you have the mi 12 minor prophets and the three major prophets and in, in both Christianity and Judaism, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, in Christianity, um, Daniel is considered a prophetic book. It's not in the Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition, there's a third component that we call Ketuvim or writings. And that's got Proverbs and Psalms and Job. It's got First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It's sort of a miscellaneous uh, category. And the order of books in that category, even into the 19th century, you would find different orders for those for those books. Uh, so while it's all biblical, uh, certainly the highest level of sanctity for Jews is found in the, the Torah. And that's the, the book, that's the, the scroll, the five books that are read on an annual basis uh, within Judaism. It seems to me that for Christians, uh, the heart of the Bible has traditionally been the prophets. 
to the extent that here are those who are foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. Here's their teaching upon which Jesus built. Uh, and it's not to say that Christians don't study the Torah or Jews don't study the prophets, but it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine uh, a context outside of traditional Judaism where the book of Leviticus is really all that exciting. <laughs> and, and just for clarity for listeners as well, because you went through it so nicely, but the Torah and then you have the prophets, which is the Nevi'im, and then you have the writings, which is Ketuvim, and together, I mean, more, it's more just for our listeners, just in case, right, together the TNK or the Cha becomes Tanakh. And so if you say Tanakh, that refers to the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, and more just to provide clarity because sometimes you hear that especially if you go to a synagogue or you know you're part of jewish community you hear the word tanakh and it's not always clear what that's referring to and it's, it's found thank you for that it's the the um the, the most popular english language version of the bible which is produced by the jewish public publication society is called the tanakh the, exactly that acronym and the uh the most popular jewish bible translation among Orthodox Jews is also called the Tanakh, but one is spelled with a K. <laughs> and we, you, uh, Mary just did a Tanakh because it's a hard C. Um, and um, as I said, be, I started by saying, yes, tr- I think translation is fascinating in and of themselves. Uh, but, but, and I don't think I'm being unfair here. And I apologize if I, if in some sense I am, the, the, the Bible in, in its original language. It is more central in Judaism than, as I understand, in in most as in most um, denominations of Christianity. Um, so, for example, uh, I would say any rabbi. I can't speak for all of them, but in my experience, any rabbi who's talking about the Bible will have in front of her or him and make reference to the Bible in Hebrew. Uh, be part of rabbinic education. It certainly doesn't mean, by the way, that all Jews or most Jews in any given congregation are fluent in Hebrew. But again, we've we've all had that experience. Uh, And Christianity, after all, the Bible, for Christians, uh, the the heart of it, the gospel, is is translation. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, is translated into Greek. It's neither a bad, I'm not saying it's, it's a bad or a good thing, but I, 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 I haven't noticed uh, the centrality of the, of the Bible in its original language as much of a feature in Christianity in general as in Judaism. Yeah. And just wanting to make sure that we have, you know, because we don't have, um, it's, it's fascinating, right, in terms of how modern religions carry through. But I'd love to kind of think about the the Jewish translations, like zooming in on the Jewish community a little bit historically, right? You took us to um, the Alexandrian school with the, the Septuagint, um, which very interesting, as you pointed out, right? It gets used by the Christian communities and it actually stops being in usage in the Jewish communities as they go close, you know, they come back to the Hebrew Bible, to your point. Um, would love to get a sense, I think, uh, Septuagint is your first, you know, one of your first chapters. Then you move on to the Targumim. Can you speak a little bit about the Targumim and, and when those were produced, who produced them, and how they were used even to today? Thank you. Yeah. Um, the, the, according to Jewish tradition, um, the, the Targumim originated even earlier than the Septuagint. Uh, 
if you looked at the book of, of, of if you looked at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, not that, that many people do, but in the eighth chapter of the book of Nehemiah, Ezra, who was a scribe who had been in Babylon, the Jews have been exiled into Babylon. Now they've been allowed to return to the Jerusalem area. And Ezra comes back uh, with a text. And we generally think it's, it's the text of an early form of the, the Torah, the five books of Moses. And he's reading it to the people. He's reading it in Hebrew. And uh, according to the biblical text in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, there are people there, and one way of understanding it is they are translating what Ezra is saying. Why would they need to translate what Ezra is saying? Because by this time, the main language of the world is Aramaic. And Jews who are living in Jerusalem after a generation or so, or they've been living three generations in Babylon, no longer were fluent in Hebrew, and they needed to have the Bible translated. Now, that is that may in fact be the case, but when we speak of the Targums, we're talking about Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible produced between the first and the sixth century of the Common Era, even though some of them continued to be added on into the 13th and 14th century. The Targumim uh, were established in such a way that in many communities, they became part of the religious service. This is the way it went. Someone, again, the tradition of reading the Torah scroll in Hebrew in a synagogue is at least 2,000 years old. Someone would read a verse of the Hebrew, and then someone else would trans or give the, tra the Aramaic translation of that verse. Presumably, that was to help people who, they, you know, they didn't have a, a translation in front of them. They had a text, but they, they heard what they heard. They knew whatever Hebrew they knew, but they needed it translated. Uh, so this is interesting because that kind of um, recognition by uh, the rabbinic leaders of Judaism was never accorded to the Septuagint. Some, um, some rabbis didn't have any problems with the Septuagint, uh, but they, as far as we know, we don't have any instances that this was recorded in, as part of the service, whereas the Targumim were. Uh, and th therefore, uh, study of the Targums, that's the English language plural, Targumim is Hebrew, Aramaic plural of the Targumim, uh, became part and parcel of what it meant to have a, a Jewish education. And what's really, really interesting about the Targumim. Okay, so first of all, we do not know for sure who translated them. We do not know for sure where they were translated. And we do not know exactly for sure when they were translated. <laughs> Given the fact that we don't, don't know all, uh, that we don't know that with any sort of precision, what's interesting is that if you're looking at the translation, the Targums have been translated into English and are, are pretty available, you'll be reading a translation which is fairly literal. So yeah, this this seems like something I know. And then all of a sudden there'll be two, five, even twenty verses, and you have no idea where these verses came from. They they oh that's not in my Bible, is it? No, where'd that come from? And what appears to be the case is that those responsible for the Targum they wanted to have the text there in Aramaic, the traditional text. 
but they, I would say, felt empowered to add a miscellaneous, a huge amount of additional information. Um, and that additional information in some other generation might have ended up in a commentary or as footnotes, but here it's right in the text. And so when you read the Targumim, that could be, uh, I, was, I was just looking over some examples uh, from, from, the, from the book of, of Esther, uh, where um, if the book of Esther begins with this, uh, what, 180 days of eating and drinking and festivities, and then the, the king says, hey, I want my wife to, sh- to come here and show off. And she said, absolutely not. And so there's a verse in, in the Hebrew Bible that, that um, the king is called in the Hebrew. Hashirah gets very angry about it and, you know, banishes his wife. And in and, and one of the Targumim, there's like 28 verses on that. The, the king's, uh, in that account, the king sort of sobers up and says, whoa, what happened to my wife? And they said, don't you remember we told you? that she wasn't she wasn't uh, responding. That would be set a bad example. He said, no, no, you must be wrong. Uh, I'm going to kill all of you because you, 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 I didn't tell you to. And because all, all these stories and there's one after the other, after the other, after the other. And we would say, whoa, is that translation? And the answer is, it's Targum. Um, you know, it's, th- this is the a form of Midrash. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The, the midrash, which are these uh, um, additions to the embellishments to the text, uh, about which, if I can, it, it's a a quick autobiographical story. Uh, so when I went to Sunday school, uh, and I'm conservative Judaism, we had you know every Sunday we met, and twice a week we met, and you met on Sundays. You didn't go to Shabbat school. No. We did. Oh, interesting. <laughs> we had on Sunday. Well, we had services on Saturday. We had Sunday school. Uh, mm-hmm. That being because um, the conservative movement's not the most traditional yeah. by any means, but we weren't supposed to write on the Sabbath. So if you're in school, you probably want to be writing. Right. That makes Sunday. so much sense. We twice, twice a week. But we, you know, and we learned about the Bible. Uh, so I thought that's what we did. And I was when I was an undergraduate. I was in a. I went to a Southern Baptist school, and we were required to take an Old Testament class and a New Testament class. So I'm in the Old Testament class, mm-hmm. and so we're, we're getting to the book. We get to the book of Exodus, and we're reading about uh, Moses. And uh, there's Moses. He's little, and the next thing, uh, he's he's grown up, you know, and he he's gets, he actually slays an Egyptian for being uh, really nasty toward one of the uh, Israelite slaves. And I stopped. I, I can remember as if it were today. And of course, it was decades ago. I, I, st- I didn't. Fortunately, I was smart enough not to say anything about it out loud. But I said to myself, what has happened to this Bible? Southern Baptist, <laughs> what have they done to the Bible? Where's that story? And the story I was thinking of was a story of because uh, the text says uh, that uh, Moses at least claimed that uh, he actually says he was uncircumcised of lips. He, he has some kind of speech impediment. And when God says to Moses, you need to go speak to Pharaoh, he says, no, no, I can't do it. I've got this speech impediment. Aaron, my brother, needs to do it. And But where did he get this impediment from? The biblical text doesn't say anything about it. The story I had learned was that when he was just a little bit of baby uh, in the Egyptian court, uh, some of Pharaoh's other sons got, um, you know, got upset with 
the favoritism being shown to Moses and said to their father, you got to get rid of this little baby. All he wants is the throne. And so they put a, um, a pile of jewels and a pile of hot coals in front of the child. And if he, if he went for the jewels, that will be, you know, he's really have the throne in mind. And of course, given a choice, no matter how young we are, we go for the jewels, right? So according to the story I had heard and always thought was biblical, a, an angel comes and moves baby Moses' finger away from the jewels to the hot coals, at which point uh, Moses, uh, you know, little baby Moses takes the, his, 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 his uh, fingers now burning, he puts it up to his lip, and that's where the um, impediment came from. And up until that day, I had thought that was biblical. Well, you know, so this this is interesting because, you know, what's biblical is not necessarily just what's in the text. And it's also involves uh, a great deal of interpretation. So I, 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 what I wanted to say um, uh, um, relating to this wide view of Jewish translations is that when we ask what motivates an individual or group to translate, well, you say, okay, uh, the obvious answer, which is not a long answer, is here's a text that we think is very important for our community. It's in a language our community doesn't know. We've got to translate it in order for them to have some kind of direct contact and interaction with the text. So we've seen that sometimes translators determined that the best way to do this was by keeping as much of the original language and original structure as possible. And sometimes they felt like updating it into a, a more contemporary uh, format was better. But translations, this is what's so interesting about it. Translation is a lot more than that. Uh, so the examples I'm, I'm going to mention, be it briefly, uh, relate specifically to Jewish translations that have a wider um, applicability. So uh, there were Jewish translations into Yiddish, which is basically, it's a, it's a form of German. It's actually written in Hebrew. It has uh, a lot of Hebrew words in it as well. Um, and that was the language which uh, Jews spoke in German-speaking lands from probably the 8th century until well into the 18th century. Uh, there was a man named um, Moses Mendelssohn who lived at the end of the 18th century, latter part of the 18th century in Germany. He was part of uh, a movement within Judaism. We speak of it as an enlightenment movement. It was similar to the general enlightenment movement. And he felt that he needed to produce a German translation. There's not been a German translation all those centuries for Jews. Obviously, that was the German translation of, of Martin Luther, but that was not considered, for a variety of reasons, appropriate to use within uh, Jewish communal, uh, Jewish worship context. So what did he do? He, he translated the, he began the translation of the Hebrew Bible into German. And he, the German he chose was what I, we generally call High German. This was not the language that the Jews were typically speaking then. They were speaking Yiddish, which uh, Mendelssohn considered to be a jargon 
a, a lower class language. And if you want to be part of your community, and this is the time period, the 18th century, when for the first time in Western Europe, Jews were being allowed to become full citizens and have voting rights and land ownership and business opportunities. And so what Mendelssohn had in his mind was, I'm going to produce a translation which among its major goals will be to teach Jews proper German. Also, uh, and, and so that was the process, uh, the, the individual who translated the, the, the Bible in the middle of the 19th century into Hungarian uh, was part of a movement that wanted to um, make Hungary, the Magyarization, wanted to make Hungary a distinct society. And uh, he, he felt that was important as part of his translation, admittedly not nearly as famous as as uh, Mendelssohn's, he wanted to make a Hungarian language available to Jews through his translation. The English translation, which I grew up on, the English language translation, was produced by the Jewish Publication Society in 1917. It was used until the 60s. So it was used in my bar mitzvah, for example. Um, that translation was actually a revision of the King James. It was done, it was completed in, in uh, 1917. So we're centuries away from King James. But one of the goals of the translator, the main translator, uh, he himself was an immigrant from Eastern Europe. He wanted Jews to be able to speak English well. And he didn't think they were going to learn it on the East Side. He didn't think they were going to learn it on, at, uh, in, in the... Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the bars and the grills and the vaudeville, he, he, he felt like the best way for Jews to be part of American society was to learn what we might call the king's English. He, so he anticipated that Jews would start reading this translation and that would help them become part of the society. At the same time, in all of these examples, um, uh, with Mendelssohn and also with the Jewish Publication Society, the translators had a second goal in mind, and that was that their translation reflects the Jewish tradition. All translation, we say, is uh, in part interpretation, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, someone once asked me, well, wouldn't, wouldn't a neutral translation produced maybe by an agnostic, or an, to me, wouldn't that be the best translation? I said, no, not necessarily. All translations interpretation. Uh, and consequently, these part of what the Jewish Bible versions are uh, set out to do is to reflect a number of Jewish, what we call exegetical or interpretive traditions. And this can be done typically when commentaries the many Jewish translations are, in many uh, traditional Jewish translations, you might have three verses of translation and then 50 verses of commentary and five verses of translations and 45 verses of commentary. Uh, it's very different from a, a Protestant translation like King James, 
which doesn't have any footnotes. Uh, that was really for political as well as theological reasons. But the, the translation as a means of gaining entry into a society and also the translation as a means of transmitting views so that a Catholic Bible translation uh, and a Protestant Bible translation, and in fact, a Jewish Bible translation, they won't be diametrically opposed to each other. They'll be pretty much interchangeable, but there's sometimes when that's not the case. And, um, oh, I don't, I don't yeah, no, I think this is so helpful because I think you you ended up uh, anticipating my question, which was going to be sort of taking the translations into the diaspora, which you did. Um, we didn't cover, we're, we're at time, but um, we didn't cover, you know, the Arabic translations, the Yiddish trans- translations, that kind of thing. But I think that's a good segue for, for listeners to to read your book so you can, they can get a sense of, hey, what are some of the other um, many, many translations that are out there in the Jewish communities, right? Because it's not just English, right? There's, as you mentioned, German and and beyond. So um, thank you for kind of taking us on a journey of what translation, I think you, you kind of schooled us a little bit on how translations are done, what they're, you know, what's the types of translations, how they're used, who, you know, what are some of the functional reasons why translators take on a translation, which I think was really helpful. Um, so maybe I'll ask you just the last question, just quickly, if you could kind of share, if, if our listeners wanted to get more resources or they, hey, I want to find out more about this, or I want to learn more about uh, what would what would be a good? Or do you have any resources for them to kind of think about how translate, translation works? Got to be careful because a lot of books with a very similar title. But a guide to a guide, G U I D E, to uh, Bible translations that was brought out by the United Bible Societies. It's 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 a it's in dictionary format, but it's like a lot of encyclopedia dictionary format. It's got some articles that went ten or twenty pages, so it's substantive. Is probably the most balanced. Um, introduction to Bible translation. Uh, Beyond that, I would simply say uh, most people who write about Bible translations have a strong sense that a particular, like a functional or a formal is better, or a conservative Protestant one is better than this. And there's, so that there's a certain amount of bias built in to most discussions of Bible translation. The only Bible translation a discussion which is unbiased is, of course, mine. <laughs> no, that's a great, that's a great uh, parting word. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I, I think this will be interesting for for a number of, of, of students and and uh, scholars, kind of help begin thinking about translations as they think about, hey, how do I think about ancient script, you know, manuscripts, and how do I deal with those? So thank you for taking us on the translation journey for the Jewish community. So appreciate the time. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>